This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to discuss and think with you about the importance of theology. Broadly speaking, our evangelical culture in America is dumbing down doctrine and theology. Rarely in the typical evangelical church in America will you hear sermons or teaching sessions on God as Trinity or on the importance of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Yet, both of these doctrines are central to our faith and have major implications for culture and life. In this perspective, I want to illustrate the importance of what the Apostle Paul calls sound doctrine to our lives. First of all, the importance of the doctrine of God as Trinity. Genuine biblical Christianity has at the core of its theology the doctrine that God is Trinity. The Bible clearly reveals this truth from chapter 1 of Genesis on through the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. As the early church struggled with the precise terms to define what the scriptures clearly articulate, the Council of Chalcedon in A.D. 451 was perhaps the critical tipping point. At that council, church leaders stated, in effect, that God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally, that is, Father, Son, and Spirit, and who differ functionally. And perhaps the best place to illustrate that is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, where we learn that in terms of salvation, the Father chooses, the Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. They each have a different functional role in the plan of salvation. The doctrine of God as Trinity is difficult, but it is central to our understanding of who God is as he chooses to reveal himself to us in Scripture. A few examples. You cannot read the Gospel of John without the clear conviction that Jesus is fully God, especially the I Am passages in the Gospel of John. And perhaps the central passage of John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24, one of the greatest defenses of Christian monotheism in the entire Bible. One essence of three persons who differ relationally, Father, Son, and Spirit, and functionally. Furthermore, 1 John 4, verse 8 teaches that God is love. Now, God is love is a predicate nominative, if you want to get grammatical about it, that defines one of the central elements of God's character and his nature, love. But love is a relational concept by definition. And since God is Trinity, that concept makes much more sense. God is love because through all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit experience love and communion with one another. That's certainly one of the reasons God chose to create humans as his image bearers. His creatures will enjoy the same love and communion that God as Trinity has enjoyed for all eternity. Therefore, God desires to walk with us, to fellowship with us, Koinonia, that key word in the first epistle of John. But you see it in Genesis 2, where he walked with Adam and Eve. And you see it also in Revelation 21 and 22, those magnificent chapters, 
summarizing the new heaven and the new earth. God will walk with his people, but our sin makes that impossible. Therefore, God, who is love, sends the second person of the Trinity, who adds to his deity humanity, to die for our sin and be resurrected in power, proving that the price for sin has been paid. God as Trinity enables us to more fully comprehend his love and his redemptive plan for us. Without that doctrine, his redemptive work does not make much sense. Second, consider with me a broader understanding of God as Trinity. Paul makes the case for God's diversity as the basis for diversity in the body of Christ, the church. He does that in 1 Corinthians 12. The diversity of the body also extends to the ethnic makeup of the church. You see that in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. And even the book of Revelation makes it clear that in heaven and then in the new heaven and new earth, every tongue, people, tribe, and nation will be represented. The ethno-cultural differences of humanity reflect God's love of diversity and variety, which are rooted in his nature as Trinity. Contrast this fundamental belief with Islam. The Quran teaches adamantly that Allah is absolutely one. There is no trinity in Islam. Indeed, in the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, and I get there every year and see that magnificent structure, Islam, after conquering Jerusalem and establishing the supremacy of Islam in the Holy Land, they did that in the 600s, built the Dome of the Rock. The dome is not a mosque, it's a memorial to Allah, so that it would dominate Jerusalem and stand higher in elevation than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on Temple Mount. In the Dome of the Rock, there is this founding inscription inscribed around the inside of the dome, and I want to quote that. Listen carefully. O oh, you people of the book, and parenthesis, in the Quran, people of the book refers to Jews and Christians, Overstep not bounds on your religion, and of God speak only the truth. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, is only an apostle of God, and his word, which he conveyed unto Mary, and a spirit proceeding from him. Believe therefore in God and his apostles. Say not three. It is better for you. God is only one God. Far be it from his glory that he should have a son. Close that quotation, which I translated from the Arabic in that dome of the rock inscription that goes around the inside of the dome. Islam is adamant. God is not Trinity. God is absolutely one. This inscription in the dome of the rock on Temple Mount was an obvious invitation for Christians and those who were Jewish, believing in monotheism, to abandon a belief in the Trinity and in the deity of Jesus. Therefore, Allah lacks diversity within himself, and this belief impacts Islamic culture as well. There is an authoritarian unity that is demanded in Islam, at least in religious matters, and it does not share the appreciation of diversity that one sees in genuine biblical Christianity. 
The Quran has been translated into other languages, but Arabic remains the language for worship and prayers. The best example of that are the five ritualistic prayers that a devout Muslim is to pray every day. They're always prayed in Arabic, even if you do not understand that language. There's a hesitation to embrace cultural differences within Islam, with a strong impetus to create a monolithic society and culture. That is certainly the agenda of radical and extreme Islam, but it's also that case among the conservative Islamic cultures of, for example, Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates along the Gulf. One's belief in God is absolutely one, as in Islam, has a direct impact on how culture and society develop. Thirdly, consider the importance of affirming the authority of God's revelation in Scripture. The Bible is adamant that this Trinitarian God is also the creator of all things, including creating humanity in his image. But now, within evangelical Christianity, there is a movement to deny the biblical teaching that God directly created humanity in the persons of Adam and Eve. In other words, that Adam and Eve are our parents, quote-unquote, and that their sin was an historical event, not simply a metaphor or a story without historical foundation. The Darwinian hypothesis has challenged genuine biblical Christianity since 1859. But within evangelicalism today, there are leaders such as Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, who did convert from atheism to Christianity. But he argues he's both a committed defender of the Darwinian evolutionary hypothesis, but also a Christian who believes in God as creator. He basically defends, nonetheless, a theistic evolutionary model, one which doubts the historicity of Genesis 1, certainly the first three chapters, and in some cases all the way through chapter 11. For Collins, one cannot believe that God directly created Adam and Eve. But in my view, the Bible does not give us this option. It declares forcefully and unequivocally that God created directly Adam and Eve in his image, and that through their sin and rebellion, all humans sin. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 makes it clear that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, through his obedience, undoes the disobedience of the first Adam. Such a conceptual framework for the entire redemptive plan of God is impossible if there is no first historic couple. If there is no Adam and Eve, genuine historic people who lived, there is no gospel. The two are inextricably linked in Scripture. So in conclusion, in this first perspective, Today's typical evangelical church must return to detailed and systematic teaching and preaching of what Paul calls, especially in his pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, the book of Titus, sound doctrine. The current cultivation of superficiality and shallowness within evangelicalism must come to an end. Every dimension of our lives and our culture depend on well-taught and well-equipped Christians. As Ephesians 4 makes it clear as well, the key to equipping the saints for ministry is God's Word, which is the key or the source or the foundation of sound doctrine. There is no other way to do it. And the illustrations in this perspective demonstrate why sound doctrine is so 
important to our faith. In our second perspective on today's program, I want to think with you about the Head Start program, which was a part of LBJ's War on Poverty back in the 1960s. One of my favorite columnists that I read every week is Joe Klein, who is a columnist in Time magazine. Although decidedly liberal in the political sense, Joe Klein is honest and straightforward, and I respect that about him. For that reason, his most recent column on Head Start, the Head Start program, was intriguing. That program was one of the signature elements of LBJ's War on Poverty in the 1960s. At that time, it was administered out of what was called then the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Today, in 2011, it's still administered out of what's called now the Health and Human Services Department. In the 1960s, evidence indicates that the pilot programs of Head Start were effectively run and achieved their articulated goals. But today, Klein categorically declares that Head Start is a monumental failure. It is now 45 years since that program was begun. Today, we spend more than $7 billion each year on Head Start, serving over a million children. Klein writes, quote, There is indisputable evidence about the program's effectiveness provided by the Department of Health and Human Services. Head Start does not work. The title of the Health and Human Services report is Head Start Impact Study, and it declares that the positive effects of the program are minimal and vanish by the end of the first grade. Head Start graduates performed about the same as students of similar income and social status who are not a part of the program. Klein reports that these results were so shocking that the HHS team sat on them for several years. Correctly, he observes that Head Start is a classic example of government-run social programs. They often succeed as pilot programs, but fail when taken to full scale. There are several key questions about Head Start today in 2011. Why is Head Start administered through HHS and not the Department of Education? The answer it was LBJ's War on Poverty Directive. His vision was to have community action programs, uh, let's call them local agencies, administer programs to rebuild poor communities. Head Start was to be a signature one of these community action programs. Klein writes that these outfits soon proved slovenly. These are Klein's words. Often they were little more than patronage troughs for local Democratic Party honchos. And remarkably to this day, they remain the primary dispensers of Head Start funds. These local community action programs today that administer Head Start are really make-work-jobs programs. In other words, Head Start's a jobs program, not an early education program that works. Klein observes, since we're talking about the lives of children, these are Klein's words, this is criminal. In so many ways, dear people... Head Start is a metaphor for the federal government waste and inefficiency, a noble idea that does not work. Instead, it has become a government patronage machine that swallows up $7 billion annually and does not really aid the children it was designed to help. 
So it is actually a case study for the waste and lack of integrity of the national government. It's an example of waste in government spending that has helped in no small way to create the financial crisis we are now in as a nation. Reading this report has been one of the saddest things I have done in quite some time. I have heard about Head Start almost my entire adult life. My daughter is a teacher, and she has been involved many years ago in a Head Start initiative. It's a failure, as Klein writes, and remember, Klein comes from the liberal end of the political spectrum. He says it is a catastrophic failure. It does not work. Will we face up to that reality? Will we end that program? I doubt it. It's become a works job program, giving people as patronage rewards for supporting the current presidential administration. And that's been going on for 45 years. What a metaphor for the waste and inefficiency of a government-run social program. In our final perspective on the program today, I want to think biblically with you about immigration, a provocative topic. America has been experiencing a crisis for some time now in the area of its immigration policies and practices. In this perspective, I want to add a biblical perspective to the discussion. There is little doubt that politics and economics frame the immigration debate in our culture, but two biblical mandates should also inform our thinking as Christians, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Dr. Alex Mendez, a National Director of Hispanic Ministry and Gateway Theological Training for the Evangelical Free Church of America, asks that we view the nearly 18 million undocumented people living in America as an opportunity. He writes, Many of these people are outside of their home and countries, separated from their families and outside of their own government systems. They are prime for the gospel. It is demonstrably illegal for us as Americans to hire them. There's no doubt about that. It is demonstrably illegal for us to provide false paperwork for them. But we can evangelize them. Three fundamental parameters are dictated to us by Scripture. One, all immigrants, even those who are illegal, are made in the image of God and are of infinite worth and value to Him. Two, both the Great Commission— and the great commandment inform our approach to illegals. And three, the Apostle Paul walked a fine line between compassion and the execution of the law. The best example of Paul's demeanor on this is the book of Philemon. Onesimus, the slave, was running away from his master, Philemon. Paul discipled him and eventually sent him back to his master. But he told Philemon, the master, to treat Onesimus as his brother and said, I will even pay his debts if he owes you anything. Dr. Michael Pocock, who is chairman and senior professor of world missions at Dallas Theological Seminary, offers three key points that enable us to maintain a biblical perspective on immigration. One, because all people are in God's image, immigrants should be treated with dignity, even if they attempt to circumvent the law. 
They must be held accountable. But at the same time, the state should do everything it can to prosecute abusive employers who are also breaking the law. Number two, the Old Testament helps us see that God makes provision for alien and poor workers, exemplified in the case of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz permits an alien, Ruth from Moab, to glean in his fields, and he offered her protection from his own male workers, as well as safety, respect, water, and shelter. Finally, national governments are basically units of government established by God to accomplish his purposes. Rule of law must be respected, and government has the obligation to establish policies for the well-being of its people. And this includes laws that establish a reasonable and manageable flow of immigrants into a nation. Somehow, however, Christians must find a way to embrace a policy that reflects understanding, compassion, and respect for immigrants, while at the same time urging respect and honor to government and its laws. Pocock writes, Christ's immigration policy would stress ministry to migrants and also the privilege and responsibility of Christian migrants to spread the gospel wherever they are. The Bible makes it clear that many of the biblical persons, let's call them heroes, were in fact immigrants at some point in their lives. Consider these. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Elimelech, Naomi, and her son, in the book of Ruth, Ruth herself, David, Joseph, Mary and Jesus, they were down in Egypt for a period of time, Aquila and Priscilla, and Jewish Christians fleeing persecution. Pocock concludes, whether it is hospitality to strangers, Romans 12, 13, or entertaining those who cannot repay, Luke 14, doing good to all persons, Galatians 6, 10, or considering all people equally, no matter their culture or ethnicity, Colossians chapter 3, the Bible speaks to our attitude toward those of other races or culture. Let me repeat that. The Bible speaks to our attitude toward those of other races or culture. And that is an aspect of the whole immigration debate. The church should lead the way in finding the balance between treating immigrants with dignity and obedience to the rule of law. Compassion mixed with respect for law must be modeled and realized in the church of Jesus Christ. Dear people, arguably, there's tremendous tension here. This is a volatile issue. This is an emotional issue. This is a provocative issue. But first and foremost, the church of Jesus Christ must see immigrants the way God sees immigrants, people created in his image people that need to hear the gospel, people that can be transformed and changed. And we must balance that view, that perspective, that dimension, with also respect and honoring the law. Rule of law is an important biblical concept as well. Putting those together in a balanced perspective has tremendous tension, but that's what we should strive for. May God continue to bless us as we, Christians, genuine biblical Christianity, leads the way in finding that balance. May God give us the grace to do so. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.